I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Uh, today's guest has been on, well, today's guest's organization has been on the cover of Time Magazine in the past, which makes that quite exciting. And we'll get into that just a little bit later. Um, but uh, we're talking about hospitals, hospital innovation, uh, what people see ahead of what's going on in medium to large size hospitals today. And I had the pleasure in a, in a prior life uh, to sit on a board of a Catholic hospital and then the Catholic hospital system that ran that particular hospital. And I just got to tell this anecdote because I, I just love it. It's, it, it happened every month at the board meeting, every month. So the head of the board was Sister Beverly Ann. And Sister Beverly Ann was the most lovely person you'd ever want to meet. But she always had the habit of every time we had one of these meetings, she would come and sit down right on my left side every time. As a matter of fact, when someone is sitting there, she'd ask them to move and she'd park herself by me. Why? I have no clue. We just got along. But every, almost every meeting, I don't say every meeting, she always would lean over to me and say, say this, Dr. Anders, I just want to remind you, no margin, no mission. <laughs> and I, I just, it was a mantra of mine sitting on hospital boards, because you're absolutely right. If you have no margin, you have no mission. And we did a tremendous amount of, of non-paid medical care, as does the system that we're talking about today. So I have the pleasure of introducing Michael Marin. He's the president and chief executive officer of Holy Name Medical Center. Um, it's New Jersey's last remaining independent Catholic health system, which is they are going away rapidly, comprising 361 bed acute care medical center, a cancer center, a medical fitness center, a residential hospice, nursing school, a large physician network, and it has a, a national reputation for providing culturally sensitive care, which is so important these days because we're losing it, to a device, diverse population, um, drawing patients from all around the New York City region. So Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So let's start out um, by telling our listeners what, how you got started, where you are, and your pathway getting in to be CEO of, of a really kind of large medical center. What's your path there? You've been there since 1987. So tell me about that. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, today of all days is my 36th anniversary. Uh, so I started here on August 17th uh, in 1987. Um, so it's a long, it's been a long journey. When I was in undergraduate at Providence College, uh, I actually thought I was going to become a physician. And my older brother was a year ahead of me there, was a pre-med major, and talked me out of it and said, you haven't really thought this through. It's a big commitment. It's a lot of years of education. So my freshman year, I, I, I changed to accounting, and I became an accounting major. Um, the faculty and staff at Providence, not at my request, pulled me in at the start of my sophomore year and said, why'd you do this? And I said, well, my brother talked me out of it. And 
They said, okay, well, did you ever think about running a hospital? I said, no, I had no idea that even existed. And they said, no, it exists. It's a great career. And in fact, we have a major in it. And we don't think you're working hard enough in accounting. So we signed you up and you're going to double major in in health administration and accounting. Uh, And so at that time, I was sort of aimless and just said, okay. Um, and so I graduated from Providence as a double major in, in accounting and hospital administration, um, went around and did a bunch of uh, uh, sort of interviews in all sorts of different industry sectors from accounting and had a job offer from uh, Ernst & Winnie back then um, to be an auditor, which was kind of a gold standard for new accounting grads, had a couple other job offers, turned them all down. Thought about going to grad school with one of my roommates who was only a health administration major, didn't have accounting, Um, got into George Washington and into Tulane, Um, ultimately turned those down because when I went to both schools, everybody said, you're an accountant, you can get a job, what are you doing, you should go work. Um, And so despite all that, I, 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 I ended up actually taking the summer off after I graduated from Providence. Much to my my parents' chagrin, sat around the house, was doing some odd jobs here and there, and they're like, "We didn't, you didn't go to school to do this." Um, so ultimately, I took a job at Valley Hospital in uh, Ridgewood, New Jersey, in the finance department, in budget and reimbursement, as a staff level financial analyst. That was my very first job. So, unlike most of my colleagues in New Jersey. I actually came up the ranks, right? I didn't go to a graduate program, get a master's degree, come in at a a management administrative level through some internship or residency and then stayed there at the higher ranks. I actually started at one of the lowest levels you could um, as a financial analyst buried within and then very quickly became the department head for budget and reimbursement. Um, and then very quickly at the age of 26, actually left Valley and became the CFO at, uh, at another hospital. Um, and, uh, and part of that was because New Jersey at the time in the late 80s was part of a reimbursement experiment nationally. The whole DRG system, which is what Medicare pays on today, diagnostic related groups. We were one of the demonstration states. It was, it was New Jersey and Maryland. And uh, and actually, New Jersey before Maryland, Maryland still operates on that system, all payer DRG system. New Jersey abandoned it because of a lawsuit. Um, but that new system, everybody in the in, in most of the financial people in the industry, because they were already experienced in the old system, had a very very hard time adapting, learning, and adjusting to the new system. There was incredible resistance. Um, And I was kind of amazed. I was young. I was, you know, kind of ambitious, but it didn't phase me. And I just said, well, I don't know the old system, so I'll just learn the new system. (laughs) Why not? Right. So what happened was because I learned the new system well, I quickly elevated up because that at the time was probably the most critical skill set a CFO needed. You needed to know how to work that system in all its regulatory complexity to maximize the hospital's performance. And you know, that's not any small task. The DRG system is something that's really kind of hard even to understand how all of that goes together. So congrats on that. So you've been in 
in this for 25 years, 30 years, a long time. Long time. Tell me some of the, the big major changes you've seen over your career. Well, what I've seen over over uh, a career, probably, on, you know, there's positives and negatives, right? And, uh, and so there's a lot of good. I've seen advancement in medicine at an exponential pace. There is no doubt the clinical expertise, the knowledge of, of how to treat disease across the board is significantly better today than it was 40 years ago when I started. I mean, just there's no comparison. Um, and in certain disciplines like cancer and some others, I mean, exponential life-changing differences, right? Um, you know, you, it's, it's, it's greater than if people can remember, how'd you ever cook without a microwave? Um, all right. So when I was, we didn't have microwaves when I was growing up. Um, and so it's kind of the same. It's of that magnitude, the impact of the change in medicine across all the disciplines. To me, just phenomenal. Um, and so that's the good side. The bad side, I would say, is we have become much more, and this is as a finance guy, right? And I went to Columbia and got my MBA. And so I'm, I'm a, all trained education-wise financial guy. I was a CFO. I was a CFO when I came here. Um, but we worship profit and that, you know, no margin, no mission. Well, we've kind of flipped that around and said, it's all about margin and, and mission is secondary, right? And, and people, not just the, the Catholic systems, but the secular mostly, everything is about profit everything is about can i make a dollar at it i need to i need to grow capital our most ceos performance bonus comps are are targeted specifically to financial metrics um and so that has changed uh, and sort of separated us away right so when i started i couch it this way there was a very sacred bond between a physician and their patient and that sacred bond of confidence, of trust, of, of collegiality, of being able to talk with your doctor was important for that accelerated growth in, in how medicine was actually delivered and the benefits that people received. Today, the business model doesn't reward you for that, right? Doctors have to turn. You're in and out. I don't have time. I can't talk to you. I can't ask about your family. I can't. I, I don't have time. I got to get to my next patient because if I don't, the insurance companies and the managed care and the system as a whole are going to punish me for it. And I, and unfortunately I can't do it. And so what I've seen over the 40 years is a gross deterioration of that respect, that, that, that uh, sacred bond between a patient and a doctor that carries over into the health systems because everything, the physicians are critical to our, everybody's performance, right? As much as everybody tries to not make it programmatic and make doctors just, replaceable widgets along the way to provide service, we're, we're not that anymore, right? And doctors are still critical, the, the most critical. If I had to pick even above my own, right? The most important role in any health system is the physician. And we're losing that. And we're losing it because of profit, because of our, our pursuit of profit and our pursuit of just growing that bottom line ahead of everything else. So you you brought that up and it's a, I absolutely agree with it. Um, it. It has flipped, and I'm I'm hoping that some of the changes in reimbursement will actually flip it back a little bit. Agreed. Um, but tell me about some of the challenges uh, that you've had with that change. So 
how is Holy Name and your organization focused on that? So our, our focus and what makes us unique is, is that we really try to respect all along that relationship. So as our physician enterprise and our physician network has grown, right? Doctors back then were freestanding, small business, entrepreneurial people, graduate from medical school, finish your residency, hang a shingle out or join a freestanding practice. You were a small business, right? Medical staffs had their own relationship with the hospital. Now, especially in Northern New Jersey, 90% are all employed by the hospitals. You're not a freestanding. And no one coming out of medical school anymore is interested in that entrepreneurial, I'm going to hang out my you know, shingle and start my practice and patients are going to come in. That's long gone, right? And so you're joining a corporate structure. And so what we try to do is not be so corporate and say, look, you're with us. You're our partner. You're not our our subordinated employee. We don't heavy hand it. We want to celebrate you. You're vital. You're a vital gear in this very complex system, right? The whole thing shuts down. The whole machine stops if you're not performing well. And our definition of performance isn't just financial. Our definition of performance is relational. Do you do your patients stay with you? Do they are you responsive to them? Are you caring for them in what as if they were your family member? Right. So here at Holy Name, again, part of our Catholic tradition is everything is about family. We treat each other. We use the word family all the time. It's it's embedded in our in our rhetoric here. As is God, uh, and God a multi. Uh, ecumenical approach to God, not a Catholic one, right? We don't wear our Catholicity on our church sleeve. This is a very diverse community, big Orthodox community. We respect everybody. That's uh, and that's our, our how we sort of uh, adhere to what our belief of Catholic principles should be. See the image of God and everybody we care for, and how we translate that into sort of a the today's world is is see every person as if they were the family member you love the most, <laughs> not the family member you're trying to get away from, the one you love the most. <laughs> and if you see that in in the in those people, how you care for them, you're going to make the right decisions. You know, and, and being a physician, sometimes that is a, an extremely difficult thing to do because Absolutely. I really took care of all my patients very well. I, I was well-respected, but there were some folks that I would say, mm, boy, that person's coming in today. Oh my, um, yeah. that's going to be tough. Yeah. And my staff was the same way, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's every day. It's a challenge of, of how do you do that and do it well. Right. And I, I agree with that, that kind of an approach where that's, that's where the rubber kind of meets the road in, in any hospital system or, or clinic. And I'm from the large multi-specialty group practice world. Um, so let's switch just a little bit and talk about what got you on Time Magazine's cover, um, you did some interesting things during COVID, mm -hmm. including building your own EMR, which was very interesting that mm -hmm. you even attempted it during that. So can you tell us a little bit about how your the COVID experience at Holy Name and sure. then about this decision to go ahead and say, we need some something else to assist our physicians? Yeah. So, so, um, a couple of things, COVID hits, obviously March of 
2020. First patient here was in 20, but it really it went everything went off the rails. And Holy Name was the epicenter in the in the New Jersey, North New Jersey, even the tri-state area um, for the New Jersey. Now there are hospitals in Brooklyn and elsewhere too in New York that, that got hammered pretty quick. But for we became the the known ep epicenter. First early cases were here. Um, and so we pulled everybody together when we realized where this was going and said, we as an organization have a responsibility. We're not worried about, not worried, not going to get into a blame game. We're not going to get into, you know, looking for someone else to come in from the outside, some white knight to come in and bail us out or say, you know, we have, here's all these resources. We're going to fix it. We said, we have a responsibility to our community. They are hurting. We need to find a solution. We need to be responsive, irregardless of the money we're going to make or lose on this, right? If we if we end up shuttering our windows because we did the right thing trying to care for our, our, our community and the system wasn't going to pay us for it, we'll deal with that afterwards. We're not making decisions on profit. We're making decisions on what we know based on people presenting in our ER, basing on the reach, the outreach that we were inundated with from the community, we need to be responsive. So that first and foremost was that be innovative, be creative, do not blame, don't waste time on the blame game. It's not productive. We're in the middle of a crisis. And a big part of it, you know, we didn't talk about this earlier. So as Holy Name grew, we actually have a 250 bed hospital in Northern Haiti. Um, and again, why would you do that? You can't make money in Northern Haiti. Trust me, it's impossible, right? You're going to lose money. Um, but our experience and our, our, our 13, 14 years of being very actively involved running Hopital Sacre-Cœur in Northern Haiti proved us how to be a little more MacGyverish in what we have to do, right? You, there are no resources in Haiti. You have to be innovative, creative, make do with what you got. And there's no sense blaming anybody. There's no one to blame. Right? You just you have to figure it out and fix it with the resources you have. That thinking, that that sort of culture for most of my senior staff, those who, who were very involved in Haiti, applied here. And it allowed us to be innovative and, and creative in what we did. The IT system to us was critical. And so when when and when it came to the vaccine side, we sat there and said, there's a shortage of, in the beginning, shortage of supply of vaccine, excess demand off the charts. How, how do we do this? And it was, a, it, was a, it was a registration lottery system in the very, very beginning. A lot of people forget about this. There was not enough vaccine. So people had to go into a queue and then we had to release and invite you to come to the clinic to meet the demand of the vaccine we had. It wasn't open-ended because we didn't know at any point in time how much vaccine we were going to get. So our IT staff here, and, and since I came here in 87, we have always written our own software across the board. That's not a new phenomenon. We've done this since, that's part of why I came here um, in 1987. The hospital had a failed uh, computer conversion at the time. And, and the word in the industry, I, you know, I was at, at that point, I was 29, 30 years old. And they said, um, this guy, not just as a as CFO, he has a real acute working knowledge of IT systems. And if you have an IT problem, 
you should recruit him. And so they recruited me to come down and where I was they're like, are you crazy? That hospital is going to go over under. They haven't dropped the bill in a year because of this failed computer system. And my reaction was, yeah, but you know what? It's kind of interesting. Imagine if I turn it around, right? It's I'm young. If it fails, I'll always find another job. This is, I'm not going to take this risk when I have children and, and things are completely different. I'm gonna, now's the time for me to, if I want to push the envelope, there's a good opportunity to do it. So I, I came here under that premise and, and fixed the system. And ever since, we would test it every once in a while. And the answer always came back, nope, the most efficient, most productive way to run Holy Name is write our own software. And so we did. Um, so we modernized that new development team, great development team, best I've ever seen uh, here right now. And uh, with COVID, we took the same thing and said, all right, how are we going to do this? So they, in less than 14 days, wrote an application that we put out on the public and on the and using you know web technology, cloud technology. People could register into our system. What surprised me, surprised them, is the first day, and never forget this, it went public on a Sunday afternoon. We thought, who's paying attention on a Sunday afternoon, right? Within two hours, there were 1.2 million hits Jeez. to join the, the to, to register, and it crashed the system. We were, we're like, oh my God. Where'd that volume come from? 1.2 million hits in a couple of hours. So they quickly re-engineered some of the code, made it higher volume uh, adaptable, uh, and we registered millions of people. Now, we had to start filtering it through because I had people registering from Texas, <laughs> um, right? Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> exactly. Like, They're not coming <laughs> here for a vaccine, right? Let's narrow it down. So we started filtering out and we refined it along the way. Um but then as our staff, as it changed, right, and vaccine became more important, they enhanced this registration system to an end-to-end -end vaccine system. So when you registered in our system you to get an appointment, whether we invited you in or eventually you picked your own slot, there was a registration module. And then there was a vaccine administration module where the vaccinators in our in our facility would use the same software, pull it up, say this is the you know you're getting Moderna, you're getting Pfizer, this is what you you know this is the drug you're getting, right? Because you have to track all that. Here's your 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 card, um, and so we very quickly digitized and created this workflow. What what struck me afterwards in the Department of Health. So there was one day where we started. So we opened this large uh, vaccine clinic in a uh, multi-gym auditorium that the township of Teaneck has. And they said, you want to use it, use it because COVID's here. No one's no one's going to the gyms. Um, so we'll, we'll turn them over to you. And we converted these two side-by-side -side gyms into this incredible uh, high volume vaccine clinic. We ended up vaccinating more people in New Jersey than any other organization. Um, and that happened really because this software and it facilitated a very efficient flow of patients into the system. Our vaccinators, so our good vaccinators, a good nurse could vaccinate on average about 40 people an hour without those people feeling rushed or hastened through or pushed through because the system was so efficient and the system really backed by this technology, by this software. Um, the next best, that's the state sponsored systems where they went with the large health systems 
and they tried to manipulate Epic to do this. Epic wasn't written for this, right? And so it was a kludgy workflow and they had to throw labor and bodies at it to make it work. And yes, they vaccinated the same hundreds of thousands of people, but very labor intensive, very slow. And when one of the deputy commissioners of health had called me when she heard that we were doing 40 people an hour, she's like, that's impossible. But they're, they're, the state's registry was blowing up. So they would keep calling me saying, what is going on? How are you possibly sending all these records so quick? So I literally walked around the vaccine center one day with my cell phone and FaceTimed with the deputy commissioner of health to show her. And I'm like, look, you're not going to come up from Trenton. Let me show you what we're doing. And she was blown away. She couldn't believe it. Right. So ultimately, um, that software allowed our people to be most productive. The state sponsored when they tried to jerry rig an epic system to do this, the most of skilled vaccinator could do there were eight people an hour. <laughs> so that throughput eight versus 40 was enormous, right? And that's what allowed us to be very, very efficient, very successful. And it's all, to me, it all comes down to the proper adoption implementation of technology can make a skilled caregiver, physician, nurse, whoever, a hundred times more efficient in what they do. Now you've taken that entrepreneurial innovative spirit and started to spread it out across a lot of different areas of holy name. Right. Um, and you did that again during, during COVID, not only your vaccination system, but you started building an ER system and some yeah. other things. That's right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, so the basis of our, our change here and, and why Side uh, Kondamangalan, our new CIO, who's been with us for uh, four or five years now, brilliant man, uh, um, we decided and we realized with value-based care coming, right? And I still believe um, the fee-for-service transactional medicine, if you look at the history of how hospitals and health systems were paid, forget the physician side for a minute. When I very first started, it was cost reimbursement. Everybody would fill out a cost report. You would submit a cost report to the state and to the federal government. And at the end of the year, you would say, I collected X, I spent Y. If Y was greater than X, they wrote you a check and sent you the balance, made you whole, right? Then we went to the DRG system, all payer, diagnostic, prospective payment. We're going to base it on, on various rates around resources used for diagnostics. But again, in New Jersey, there was an appeal system. So when you spent more, you would go to the state and say, yep, the DRG system paid me this, but I had to spend this. Here's why. Please give me an adjustment to my rates. And if you made a good argument, you got an adjustment to your rates. Things changed. Then in the 90s in New Jersey, when, when the lawsuit came and, and New Jersey shut down the all-payer DRG system, we went to negotiated rates with payers. Everything changed. Everything became transactional, individual, fee-for-service. What are you going to do? Our systems at the time, we adapted and said, and our core system, back from when I first started in 87, all the way through um, uh, the five years ago, was really built at its core to drop a clean bill. How do I drop a bill, collect the bill, right? And so as, as clinical information became more important 
to how you drop a bill, a, a defined clean bill, everybody started wrapping around electronic medical records, not because it was better on the clinical side, because I needed that information to justify the bill I just sent, right? That's a, and, and everybody, whether it's Epic, Cerner, Meditech, I don't care, right? I've been in, in that, they're all, their core design, our system, our core design was meant for that. And I sat back with the IT team here and I said, value-based care is coming, fee-for-service medicine's going away. If we were to envision the draconian full swing and we were in a fully capitated system, where we got a large check in January 1 of each year to care for a certain number of people, how would we write a system under that scenario? What would be most important? Because it's not billing anymore. We already got the money. It's how do I hold on to the money, right? What do we do? And what's and again, to our principle, what's the right thing for the people in the community? So we turned around and said, look, the most important thing is relationship management, contact management, coordination of care, the, the flow of clinical information, Billing is important. Financial performance is important, but it's probably the fifth, sixth thing on the list of priorities. Organizing clinical information is the priority. The sharing and communicating of clinical information amongst providers, doctor to doctor, doctor to nurse, doctor, you know, ambulatory setting to acute setting, right? Having that, all of us, all those settings to the individual, right? So you know what's going on. Um, a system designed around that as a priority, very different, very different than a historical system that's designed to generate a clean, large bill that the insurance company is going to pay. And that was the driver. And that's really the basis of this new system. It, it's code name in development is Phoenix. You know, when it when it when it's it's been running in the ER for for a couple of years very, very successfully. We're rolling it out into the ambulatory setting now. I expect within the next uh, 24 to 36 months, enterprise-wide, doesn't matter whether you're in a physician's office, you're in our, our freestanding inpatient hospice, you're a home care patient, you're an acute patient here, you're an outpatient here at this facility or one of our other outpatient facilities. Everything is going to be in Phoenix. Everything is going to be documented the same way around episodes of care, around the coordination and communication of care to all the subspecialists and the providers. Everybody will see, including the patient, a complete picture of what's happening over the course of time. Boy, that really points out to me, at least the, the necessary communication of good clinical data across an enterprise like that. And I've seen your system. I've been involved with helping you guys develop it a little bit. Um, and it's it's quite marvelous. You've done some really great work. Uh, it's quite unique, and I think that's a good thing um, because you're right. No one out there is innovating very much these days, or it seems like they're not. Correct. Well, and here's here, here's my my take, Jake. That um, again, in all my years of experience in that sector, in the IT sector, and as a as a businessman, I get it. If I'm having an entrepreneurial freestanding company. Um, that is designed to sell software in the healthcare space. The only way I'm going to sell it is if the buyers are going to get a very short horizon return on that investment, right? And I have to be able to argue you're going to get a return on this investment. Well, that return isn't necessarily because of how things have bifurcated over the years. 
it's all going to be financial. So I have to really hone in on that financial engine and know that you're going to get maximized bills, transactional bills. You know, we're going to do all these things to maximize your revenue. That's why you're going to spend a fortune, you know, on my new system because it's going to facilitate that. Um, and I get it. But if you go back and you look since again, the early eighties back then and technology changed. So IBM system 38s and 36s, which evolved to AS 400, which is now IBM's I series for most hospitals, especially in New Jersey, that was the dominant platform That's you wrote on an IBM series. That's what everybody had end to end in New Jersey. Every hospital had a system 38 that they, they wrote. And what was the code that you wrote in for a system 38? It was RPG, right? IBM didn't have, there was no other code. Mm -hmm. Well, RPG is a kludgy code, right? It's not an efficient code. And not certainly when you get to a cloud-based, modern, web-oriented kind of a, a place. And they've made some, some adaptations to the code along the way. And we still run RPG here, but it's not the future, right? That's not, not where you're going to go. So you have to you had to modernize the code. You had to modernize the business layer, the part of IT that no one wants to talk about. File structure. How where am I storing information? How am I how am I not helping our system crash if 1.2 million people decide to hit it within a two hour time frame? Right? How do I protect it with cybersecurity? How do I know that it's not going to get hacked into? All of that very unsexy. You know, the consumer at the end of the day wants a real you know, sort of modern user interface. How do I engage with the system at the front layer? But behind that is many layers of sophistication. People don't want to redo that, right? And so if I'm going to sell, I want to come in with a graphically very cool, very, but underneath it, it's not, right? Um, it's a fact that's out there, hasn't changed. Epic, which I give Judy Faulkner all the credit in the world. She built an incredible you know, machine, 50% of all medical records and electronic records in the country now are stored on Epic. It's a tremendous business success story. But the core of her system, written many years ago, is written in mumps. And so those who understand computer language, mumps is a 1970s mainframe language. It's, it's older and more kludgy than RPG. They haven't changed that, right? And her system, like everybody yep. else, and rightly so, obviously proven success, huge company, very financially, very, very successful. Core of that system is around dropping a bill. You know, how do I register you? Drop a bill, manage your insurance right. And in order to get the insurance to pay, we're wrapping around, wrapping around, wrapping around this core, which is still written in months, uh, you know, all this clinical information. Well, Mike, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time here, and I ask everyone this question, and I'm going to ask it of you. If you had a magic wand and you could wave it and change anything in healthcare, what would it be? Oh, well, so here's what I would I would say: if if there were um, greater access to uh, uh, capital and not through the venture private equity, right? I'm not a fan of that because there's there's too much extraction of limited resources outside the sector. But we need to figure a way to embrace innovation. Today, 
um, we compete on all the wrong metrics. We compete on balance sheet size. We compete on market share, right? We don't compete on innovation, creativity. Who's actually building the better mousetrap to care for the individual, right? Let's go back to, if we were to say quality medicine, I took somebody from their early 20s to their late 80s. They've been with us for 60 years. I have a complete record of them. I know them intimately. I know what works, what doesn't work, what meds they should be on, what they shouldn't be on. I have a, a good coordinated system of tracking that, communicating that, helping manage that, helping to proactively engage an individual when their lifestyle isn't, isn't conforming with what we want them to be. The technology exists to do that. We need funding. The system again today doesn't really want to pay for that because everybody's just focused on that margin as it's defined today. And and to me, if I could wave that wand, it would be a shift around that. Um, you had asked earlier, back in my earlier days, there was a lot more collaboration amongst the health systems and the hospitals everywhere, right? Nationally, but definitely in New Jersey. CEOs, when I was a CFO, we would have a monthly lunch of all the CFOs in the region. We'd go, we would go, we were friendly. We competed, but we were friendly. We would share information. No one was interested in turning the lights out on somebody else's organization. You're in trouble. We're going to help you. There's plenty of business here. Let's just kind of grow and support each other. And the CEOs have done the same thing. Along the way, those lunches disappeared, both at, at every C-seat level. CEOs don't have lunch together anymore. And when they do, you know, it's 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 nasty and it's all about how do I turn your lights out because you're taking mark precious market share that I need to meet my metrics. And it's just the competitiveness has gotten ugly. It's gotten dirty. Um, and we've lost the ability to collaborate. And there was a brief, brief window in COVID in the very beginning in 2020 from March to June of 2020. And that's all it lasted where resources were really tight. People were scared. People didn't know what to do. There was this, and we came together and collaborated. Every day there was, you know, physician CMOs of all the organizations got on a phone call. What are you seeing? What's this? You know, does this, does rotating a patient on a ventilator extend their life? Are ventilators good or are ventilators bad? Right. Should we keep do everything we can to keep someone off a ventilator? Because it seems like the minute they're on a ventilator, they're all dying. It was real time, quick, instant sharing of outcomes, information, clinical collaboration. We worked. No one was worried about, well, who's going to market that? Who's going to get paid for it? We just like, no, I have people dying. We want to stop it. How do we do it? Let's share the information. You're short on PPE. I have some excess. I'm going to share it with you. We collaborated by June of 2020. That all went away. It was all like, nope, it's a business again. We're going to compete. We're not sharing information. We're not logging on to those phone calls. We think we know better. It's proprietary within our system. We're going to use it to market directly to our consumers to use our system over yours. We're going to use it to tell payers we're better than you. They should pay us more, not pay you. And it got nasty very quick again. But there was a window and I and I was on public a lot, and I just said, you know, if that window could just be preserved, and I'm not naive enough to think that it will, but boy, I will tell you, in the midst of all this crisis, 
there's a lot of silver linings. We saw a lot of heroes, a lot of people step up and do things above and beyond across the board. I mean, healthcare people who work through that, in my opinion, the ones who really, really worked hard, the ER, the front lines, the nurses, the doctors who were in the ICUs dealing with the people on the vents, they are they are real heroes. And those who who put all the differences aside and were willing to get on a call and talk to their colleagues in New York or at Hackensack or all of our surrounding hospitals to share information, they're true heroes. That's the that is the pinnacle of a U.S. health system that is at its best. Yeah, I'm really, really hoping that that we can actually get there. And it seems like they're move ahead that we're we're inching towards that. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and having you on the podcast. If someone wants to get in touch with you or Holy Name uh, to talk about more what you did and how you did it, how would they do that? So two things, they can just go to holyname.org. You can see a lot about uh, about Holy Name. Um, and our website is getting modernized like everything else now. So you will find parts of it under construction, but there's a lot of information there. You can see it. You can email me directly. It's, uh, you know, I'm very public, very open about it. Everybody can find my email. It's mmaron, M-A-R-O-N, at holyname.org. Um, and I welcome any feedback from your listeners and any questions they would have. And yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today, doctor, and, and, and share a little bit of the Holy Name story. Thank you, Mike. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.